Well, you know, Pastor Mac has said for years that the greatest asset of our church is its people. From the parking lot to the band, staff, greeters, and everywhere in between, it's the people of the LHC family that makes God's calling a reality. And this morning, our guest speaker is no different. Bill Jones and his wife, Johnita, have been members here for over a decade. He actually serves on our board of directors here at LHC. Bill is an attorney, and he served as the former chairman of the Board of Regents at Texas A&M University, which I guess we can forgive him for. But with all of that in mind, will you guys please stand with me as we welcome a huge LHC welcome to our very own Bill Jones. I have to tell all my UT friends these days, no hate, no more hate. Um, let me first of all say that I appreciate you, the congregation of this church, allowing Mac and Julie to have some time off. They work hard. They work a lot harder than many of you even know. And uh, we love giving them some time away from us to enjoy each other. So I appreciate your indulgence. We're talking about free for all. During this month that we celebrate the freedom of our nation from 1776, as we celebrate with parades and fireworks and avoiding the rain. Several weeks ago, Johnita and I were at our ranch house in Caldwell, Texas, where I'm from. It's the ranch house that I grew up in. She's remodeled it. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful place. We had cleared some trees off of a fence line earlier that day, and we were sitting on the back deck, just kind of hanging out, and all of a sudden, a parade happened. Now, let me give you a little setting. This ranch house is next to a county road, and a county road ain't much of a road, but it's a road. And the road ends about three-quarters of a mile past the house. There's only two or three families down past our house, and most of the time they're not home. And most of the time we're not at that ranch house. Yet, there was a parade. Let's take a picture, take a look at some of these pictures of the parade. There were horses people riding horses. There was uh, four-wheelers and trucks and with these trailers on the back with, that were outfitted like a party boat with music, and I mean loud music. Several of these trucks like this with parties going on and music, and every truck and trailer had their own music, and it was loud. And this went on for 15, 20 minutes. 15 to 20 minutes, they took them to go by the ranch house this way, and about, I don't know, an hour later, they came back. 15 to 20 minutes, they came back. And Johnita looked at me, and she goes, what's going on? What is all that? I go, I don't know. This never happened when I was a kid out here. Well, I found out, if you notice, all of the riders and all the people in the pictures are African-American. It was a Juneteenth celebration. And apparently, these riding clubs from all over Central Texas, Hempstead, Brenham, Bryan College Station, all of the surrounding area, they get together at this one guy's ranch, and they do a trail ride past our house. They turn around, and they come back, and they party. It's a party. And they're celebrating, even though they don't really have an audience. I mean, there were no people lining the parade route, just me and John either. 
but they were celebrating when General Granger came in June 19, 1865, bearing the Emancipation Proclamation signed by President Abraham Lincoln freeing the slaves, all 182,500 of them that were in Texas, not counting the ones that had been brought to Texas from South Carolina, Virginia, and the other southern states running away from the Civil War. That freedom is something to celebrate. There's a memorial on the Capitol grounds called the Texas African American History Memorial. I'm president of the foundation that put that memorial on that grounds. The artist who did the artwork is a Denver, Colorado resident, and he created a panorama of black American history in Texas, starting 1528 with Esteban Durantes, who came with the explorers all the way through slavery coming into the state of Texas, the center core being the emancipation piece as the slaves were freed, and then post-slavery showing blacks' contribution to this state as buffalo soldiers, cowboys, congressmen, astronauts. I want you to take a look at this memorial. We have a video that we put out just before we dedicated it in November of 2016. Governor Greg Abbott was there to help us dedicate it, and his wife, Cecilia Abbott, is here with us today. Thank you, Cecilia, for joining us. <laughs> Governor Abbott said something that day I'll never forget. He said, there are chapters in Texas's history that have not yet been written, but they have been now. We now have completed that history. Take a look at this video, and I want you to pay a particular attention to the center core piece, and the center core piece is the artist's most favorite part of this entire monument, because it shows the 182,500 slaves coming out of slavery into what he calls the center stage of freedom, as he tried to capture the images of their emotion and their feeling. Take a look at this.
If you haven't seen the memorial, I encourage you to go see it. You will not be disappointed. It will not be a waste of your time. And I promise you, you will learn something about Texas history that you didn't know. There are two people from my family that we know of who are at least represented by the images that you saw in that picture. One of those people is my great-great-grandfather, Ephraim Jones. He was roughly 18, 19 years of age when he was bought in Tennessee and brought to Texas. He had a son who was born in 1862. Both were enslaved and both were freed on July, on June 19th, 1865, when General Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas. One of them felt the sting of slavery. He knew what it was like to be bought and sold and moved and told what to do and where to go. The little boy, three-year-old Amos Jones, probably never knew he was a slave. He hadn't yet formed the intellectual ability to understand the circumstances that he was in. By the time he was able to actually form thought and cogitate what slavery meant, he was already freed. Both were freed from ownership. They weren't freed from persecution in hard times. In fact, I would argue with you that they probably had it worse after slavery than during because they didn't have the protection of their master or the courts or the judges or the law enforcement or the people. But they weren't owned. So they were free to buy land, to marry who they wanted, to do and to be. In our spiritual walk, we often find ourselves much like my great-grandfather Amos Jones, a little three-year-old, enslaved and we don't even realize it. We don't realize that we've allowed life to enslave us. You see, somewhere between birth and death, life happens. And in there, we have these daily things that come up that create anxiety and fears, relationships that go south, illnesses that we're given, that we're told we have and we can't quite fix or figure out, death, politics, and the high anxiety that's caused by politics. And all of these things create worry and fear, and we let it enslave us. And we don't have to because we're Christ followers and we're free. Let's look at what Jesus had to say about this. If you're a follower of Christ, I want today's message to be like General Granger arriving in Galveston, Texas with the Emancipation Proclamation that tells you you are free. You don't have to have high anxiety and fears anymore. Let's start with, from what are we free? For my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather, it was ownership. They were free from ownership, being a chattel property. That's a legal term for someone being able to buy you, sell you, will you, give you to somebody as a wedding gift. They were free from that. What are we freed from if we're Christ followers? Well, the first thing we're freed from is anxiety. Anxiety worry. 
Matthew 6, 31 through 34. Matthew 6, 31 through 34. This is Jesus speaking about worry and anxiety. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I love this rich set of verses. I mean, it's like chocolate pie and vanilla malt and pumpkin pie all rolled up into one meal. You have to take it in little bitty snippets. I mean, look at what he's saying. He's saying, don't worry about all this stuff. You're worrying like you're a non-believer. Non-believers worry about all this stuff, what to wear, what to do, where to go, what to do. He goes, and they should worry about it. But you're a believer. You don't have to worry about all this. God's got this. He knows what you need. And I love the term, tomorrow will worry about itself. Isn't that cool? You don't need to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. He says, God's got this. That's what he's saying. If you look at Matthew 6, 27, he expounds on it a little bit because in Matthew 6, 31, 34, he uses minutia. He uses minutia, like what do I eat? What do I wear? Where do I go? What he's trying to say is these are the daily things in life that you worry about, that you spend your time and your energies focused on. He says, but there's also these other big things. He goes, look, in chapter 6, verse 27, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And the answer is, no. no. Not even if you're Richard Overton. Everybody know who Richard Overton is? The oldest World War II veteran alive. I met Richard when he was young, about, I don't know, 105. I didn't know who he was. They were, they were, they were having an event at the governor's office, and they had all these black veterans come in. I didn't know who the guy was. But he was about 105 then. He was a young man. He's 112. 112. Y'all know what Richard said about longevity? Y'all know what he said? They asked him, well, Richard, why, what's, the, what's the secret? He goes, just keep living. <laughs> Don't die. <laughs> Isn't that great? Just keep living. Don't die. He drinks whiskey. He smokes 12-plus cigars a day. He eats bacon and eggs, macaroni and cheese, catfish and gravy. And he says, just keep living. And not even Richard can add one hour to his already long life by worrying about tomorrow. There is a movie that really drives home this point, um, and it's called um, Bridge of Spies. Tom Hanks is the leading character. He's a lawyer, and he's representing a spy, a Russian spy, who was caught in America in the 1950s. And if y'all think the United States and Russia don't get along now, oh, we really hated each other in the 50s. We'd catch their spies, kill them. They'd catch our spies, kill them. Well, this, we're going to show some scenes where it talks about this issue of worry, this issue of, of worrying about tomorrow and the next thing. Check out some of these scenes. I don't work for the government. 
I am here to offer my services as your legal counsel. If you accept them as such, I work for you. If I accept you. Are you good at what you do? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Have you represented many accused spies? No, not yet. This will be a first for the both of us. <laughs> All right. All right, you accept. Yes, all right. Good, okay. Let's start here. If you are firm in your resolve not to cooperate with the U.S. government... I am. Yeah. Then do not talk to anybody else about your case, inside of government or out, except to me, to the extent that you trust me. I have a mandate to serve you. Nobody else does. Quite frankly, everybody else has an interest in sending you to the electric chair. All right. You don't seem alarmed. What? Would it help? <laughs> How did we do in there? Uh, not too good. Apparently, you're not an American citizen. That's true. And according to your boss, you're not a Soviet citizen either. Well, the boss isn't always right. But he's always the boss. Do you never worry? Would it help? What do you think will happen when you get home? I think I'll have a vodka. Yeah. Yeah. But, Rudolph, is there not possibility? That my people are going to shoot me. Yes. You're not worried. Would it help? So, so we have this thing that Mac always does, for those of you who are not members here, and we're going to do this to honor Mac. Turn to your neighbor and ask him, would it help? Now turn to your other neighbor and go, no. <laughs> Doesn't help. It, 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 why worry? It's not going to add one single hour to your life. There are three thoughts on how we can be free in anxiety, free from anxiety. First thought, A, God has your six o'clock. God has your six. For those of you in the military, what do I mean when I say God has your six? God has your back. 12 o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock, three. God has your back. It's like going to a bad part of town late at night to fill up with gas, and you've got Marcus Luttrell, former Navy SEAL, lone survivor, riding shotgun, and he's armed. He's got your back. You don't have to worry about it. You can get out and pump all the gas you want. You can tell people, I got money. I got money. Come on. When Marcus has got your back, you can do that. You can walk out with swag. God's got your back. Don't worry. Second thing, 
Anxiety does not equal power. Anxiety does not equal power. We somehow have this belief that if I worry about it, if I stress out about it, I'll fix the problem. That alone will fix the problem. And it doesn't. It doesn't give us power to fix the outcome. I was working on a case with a lawyer, and we had a client that was stressing out over an issue. And if I remember correctly, the issue had to do with timing. There was something that this client wanted to happen within a certain period of time. And we couldn't ensure that that thing would happen within that certain period of time. We just couldn't do it. We didn't have the power to do that. And we were trying to explain this to the client, and they just kept on being anxious about it. And finally, this lawyer that I was working with said something profound. I'll never forget it. He said, you are agonizing about something over which you have no control. Now, I don't know about the client's reaction, but my response was, whoa, <laughs> wow. It's so simple, but it's so profound. You're agonizing about something over which you have no control. Stop it. Anxiety doesn't give you power to do anything about the outcome. Third, or C, freedom from anxiety is not freedom from focus or intensity. You still have to work hard. You still have to try to figure things out. You still have to try to keep your focus on whatever the issue is. If, you're, if you've been diagnosed with an illness, you want to try to fix that thing. You want to try to do whatever the doctor tells you to do or try to figure out things to do. That's fine. Maintain your intensity and your focus. I don't want you to get the belief that I am up here trying to teach you not to care. I'm not suggesting that you just retreat to a mountaintop and stare at your navel until the answer pops in your head. That's not what I'm suggesting. You still have intensity. You still have focus. You still have work to do. You still have to rear your children. Children, you still have to go to school. You got to pass the test. You got to try to get into college. You got to try to get, work on your relationships. All of those require intensity and focus. You just don't get anxious about those things. What else are we free from? We're free from fear. We're free from fear. Timothy 1.7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid or fearful, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now note something about this verse. Paul is in prison, in a Roman prison, when he writes this passage. Have anybody, has anybody here ever been to prison? I, I, don't, I don't mean convicted of a crime. I mean, I mean, have you ever visited a prison? I have. Um, I actually represented two prisoners in my early legal career. They were prisoners who wanted to be jailhouse lawyers for other prisoners to file appeals. And they wanted access to those other prisoners. When I worked for the governor as his general counsel, um, I've been to the death row. I've been to other prisons and other prison systems. And there's something about walking into a prison. You go through the outer gate, you go through the inner door, and then you go through the inner, inner door. And when that door closes behind you, bam, click, click. A little fear factor there. Because now you're behind the doors with the bad guys. 
Well, Paul is writing from a Roman prison where they don't have flat screen TVs or support groups. And he says, you've got nothing to be afraid of. Don't be timid. God has given us power, love, and self-discipline. So even though fear is a real thing, Paul says, whoa, you just clearly don't understand how free you are from that. So here's what he tells us. A, we've got the power. We've got the power. The problem with fear is the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling that I can't do anything about this thing that's got me a little twerked up. My son Carson graduated from Abilene Christian last May, and last spring we had a party at our house for our other son who was getting married, and one of his uncles was in town, and he said, hey, Carson, you're getting ready to graduate. How does it feel? And Carson, in a moment of honesty, said, I'm terrified. Now, why was he terrified? Because his parents had told him that he was going to have to leave the nest that summer. <laughs> lovingly, lovingly, but they meant it. And he'd been looking for a job and interviewing and interviewing and interviewing and interviewing and interviewing and interviewing and the jobs weren't coming and the deadline was. And so there's this feeling of powerlessness which created fear. But Paul tells us, ah, ah, no fear. You've got power. You've got the power of God at your six. Don't worry about it. Just keep going. Does that mean you lessen your intensity and go curl up in a fetal position and suck your thumb until the job pops up? No. You got to keep moving. But no fear. What else do we get with freedom from fear? We got love. We get the love of God that he gave us through son, Jesus Christ. He loves us too much for anything, for him to allow anything to happen to us that's not within his will. He loves us too much. And that's what Jesus was saying in the earlier passage in Matthew. Stop worrying. He got this. He already knows what you need and want before you even ask him for it. Just keep going. You've got the love. He also gives us the capacity to love. Even someone who doesn't love us back. No fear. No fear. We also get self-control. Self-control. We get what we call self-discipline. Now, this is another form of power, and I'm going to tell you how it works. Has anyone here ever had someone tell them something or do something to you that makes you want to hit them in the face with your fist? Am I the only one? I mean, I'm, okay, clearly, I was say, man, maybe I need some therapy or something, because that happens to me. Paul says, whoa, 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 that's not power. Even though that person may need you to hit them in the face with your balled-up fist, that's not power. He said, power comes with self-control. Self-control. So, if we have this freedom that he's promising us from anxiety, and he's, we have this freedom from fear, what does it give us? For my ancestors, they got freedom from ownership. So my great-grandfather, Amos Jones, was able to 
freely marry who he wanted. He was able to freely go out and buy land, which he did. He was able to pick where he wanted to go, what he wanted to grow. He was able to sell product and take the money and keep it. And that land that he bought is still in the family, and John Eden and I have been rebuying it, purchasing it back from other family members to keep the land in the family. It's important to us to do that. Well, what do we get as Christ followers with our freedom from anxiety and our freedom from fear? Well, the first thing we get is we get peace. He gives us peace. Verse 6 and 7 of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, what he promises us is real peace. Real peace. There are those who are not believers who seek for peace and will call themselves spiritual. If you ask them, they'll say, yes, I'm spiritual. And what they do and what they mean is they can go and they can gaze up on the mountains and the snow-crested tops and feel peace. They can go to an ocean and hear the waves splash up against the shore and, and feel peace. They can gaze at the stars on a starry night or a full moon and, and feel peaceful or gaze upon a pastoral setting with cattle grazing out in these fields of beautiful green grass and say, yeah, I feel peaceful. But that's temporal. That's not peace beyond all understanding. We all can get that. Nothing wrong with it. But it's not the peace that Paul's talking about. It's not the peace that we're promised through, the, through Jesus Christ. There are others who don't consider themselves spiritual, but they're still seeking for peace. And you know where they look for it? Money. Power. Sex. Netflix. Twitter accounts. Instagram. Relationships success of their children, all looking for the same thing, peace. And we find out in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, there ain't but one place to get it. There's only one path to the peace that transcends all understanding. And it's A, the path to peace with first the relationship with Christ's with the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's where we have to start, first and foremost. The second part of the path is we have to request it through prayer. We have to request it. It's granted, but we have to request. And I don't mean you fall on your knees and says, God, give me peace. You first have to, when you pray, you have to recognize God's greatness. And then we have to submit to that greatness. And then we recognize God's grace. And after we do those things in prayer, then we ask and request God for the peace that he promises, and God never breaks a promise. Now, what's the power of peace? 
We know the path to peace is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We know the power of peace is we get it through prayer. But now what is the power of peace? One, the power we get from peace is, number one, it's always available. It's always available. In Philippians 4, 5, at the very end of that verse, it ends with this sentence. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. So during that time when that thing that is bothering you, that makes you afraid, and then it goes on and on and on, and you go, God, where are you? I've been praying. I've been going to church. I've been tithing. I've been doing whatever, but I don't see the answer to my prayer. It says he's right there. He's right there. It's always available. He ain't gone anywhere. He's still got your back. Just hang on. What else do we get? We get a heart guard. It guards our emotions, how we feel, how we feel. Look, when you lose a loved one, when you're diagnosed with something that may or may not be able to get cured, when you have a relationship that's going south, it's painful. He doesn't, he doesn't promise you no pain. He promises you peace through the pain. It's guarding our emotions. We used to give our dogs heart guard, which guards their hearts against the heartworm. And that's what the promise that we're made with our relationship with him. He says, I got your heart. I got you covered. You'll feel pain, but I got you. What else do we get? He guards our mind. He guards our mind. And what does that mean? That means he guards how we think about what we're going through in our lives. How do I how do I see what's happening to me? Because it's not happening to my neighbor. It's not happening to my relative. It's not happening to somebody else. It's happening to me. How do I think about this? And he says, I'm going to give you a piece that teaches you how to think about what you're going through and to know that the outcome is going to be okay no matter what the outcome is. And that's beyond understanding. I, uh, I know a woman who lost her husband to an illness. Inexplicable illness. She doesn't know exactly what it was. It affected her financially. It affected where she lives. She had to go back to work. Her life didn't turn out the way she and he had planned. And in talking to her, I could tell that it was painful. She even said, I miss him greatly. But I know God will sustain me. Now there's someone suffering pain, but is at peace. And that is beyond all understanding. It is available to each of us as Christ followers. First, Christ, then peace, then power, then freedom. We don't get freedom from the problems. We don't get freedom from life. But we do get freedom from anxiety about the problems and fear of the problems. 
And that freedom is worth celebrating collectively as we do each Sunday or privately even when we don't have an audience to watch the parade. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word about freedom and what you teach us about how we handle life's problems big and small. Help us to not be anxious about anything. Small things, what to wear, what to do, where to go. Bigger things, where to apply for college. Bigger things, who to marry. Bigger things, losing a mate, sickness, death. In all things, you have told us that you have our six, that you're always near, and you never break a promise. We all suffer pain in varying degrees at various times. But no matter the pain, we know you're there. Help us not to be anxious about the outcome. Help us to fear nothing and to fear no one. Because as Christ followers, we get the promise of your love. We get the power of your peace that is beyond all understanding. And there may be some here today, Father, who have not yet accepted you as their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Touch their hearts. Touch their minds. And show them that the peace that they are looking for, and they're looking, even if they don't know it, that the peace that they're looking for is right here with you and it is available at all times including right now and then all they have to do is to say I'm in I don't I don't understand it all I don't I don't know what happens next but I, I know that I want some of that peace I'm tired of worrying, I'm tired of anxiety, I'm tired of looking for peace in places that don't last, or in money, or in relationships. And let them know that you've, you're waiting with open arms. We ask that you give us all the ability to show the world 
who you are, even through our tough times, that we are free and we have power in our freedom for anything. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your goodness. We pray. Amen. With all heads still bowed, all eyes still closed, if there's anyone here that prayed that prayer, if there's anyone here who has not yet opened their hearts to the love of Jesus Christ, now is your time. We pause this service right now for you. We will wait for you with eyes closed, with heads bowed. And if you feel that tug, if you feel the door of your heart open, come on in. And just say, God, I'm in. I'm in. And if you've made that step, here we like to mark that. We like to mark it with something physical. All we ask that you do is simply raise your hand. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Because you are marking this day as the most important day in your life by saying, I'm in. And if you've made that decision, we ask that you fill out the card that you've been given when you come in and mark the box that said, I accepted Christ today and give it to someone in the blue tent out front. They won't harass you. We just want to make sure you know what the next steps are. We have something we do here as you put your hands down, we put our hands together and say, welcome home.